Welcome to the Insurance Law Podcast, brought to you by Best Directory of Recommended Insurance Attorneys. Welcome to the Insurance Law Podcast, the broadcast about timely and important legal issues affecting the insurance industry. I'm John Zuba, editor of Best Directory of Recommended Insurance Attorneys. Joining me is Brendan Noonan from our communications team. We're pleased to have with us today attorneys Dan Santanello and Heather Calhoun from the law firm of Lux Santanello, Petrillo & Jones in Florida. Dan is the managing partner and is a Florida board certified trial specialist with 22 years of litigation experience. He serves as the co-litigation director of the firm's complex and high exposure trial team and is the director of the Florida Defense Lawyers Association. Dan works out of the firm's West Palm Beach office. Heather Calhoun is a junior partner in the litigation practice group. She has dedicated her practice to handling complex and catastrophic personal injury and wrongful death matters. She was named the Florida Rising Star in the area of civil litigation defense in 2010, and she works out of the Miami office. The firm has seven offices statewide in Florida. Dan and Heather, we're very pleased to have you with us today. Thank you, John. Thank you. The proliferation of social media and its implications for use in discovery and investigation can have a major impact on claims outcomes. In an age of technology that can put private communication on public view, multitudes are unguarded in their use of social media. Today's podcast will discuss the Stored Communications Act, current case law, the ethical issues and use of social media in investigation and discovery, and Brendan Noonan will lead off today with our first question. Uh, Dan, what is the Stored Communications Act, and who controls the contents of a communication? Yes, thank you, Brendan. The Stored Communications Act actually was passed by Congress in 1986 to basically deal with problems that the Fourth Amendment, obviously, our forefathers never were able to contemplate, and that is emails and social media type of communications, such as posting photos and pictures on the Internet for some or all to see. The Act was actually passed in 1986, and it basically, under 18 U.S.C. 2703, where it's codified, it basically the intent is to protect the production of or the release of electronic information that is stored on sites such as Facebook and Twitter and other type of Internet service providers. And essentially, Brendan, the Act prohibits providers such as Facebook, Google, or other Internet service providers from sending and disclosing electronic communications to third parties. And that's really the purpose of the Act. A couple of cases came out in the last couple of years. The biggest one, and probably most important, was uh, in Ray subpoena ducis tecum to AOL, which was a uh, federal case out of Virginia in 2008. And they basically, the federal courts have come out and said that private parties in civil litigation, such as personal injury cases, do not have the ability to subpoena electronic communications from Internet service providers. They felt that under the statute, only governments could obtain this information through process such as warrants and things of that place. So the big question that's been developing is how do we get evidence that is clearly stored on social media contexts such as Facebook and MySpace accounts? How do we get that evidence to the point where it can be used in a civil arena? Uh, Heather, how do posts and status updates on social media sites affect the liability and credibility of plaintiffs? Well, Facebook has surpassed Google as the most visited website with more than 800 million active users who post status updates, view pictures, and write messages. 
On average, more than 250 million photos are uploaded per day, and at least 750 million photos were uploaded over New Year's weekend. In fact, in January of this year, the Los Angeles Times reported that social media sites like Facebook were crucial in an arson probe and reported on how authorities and the public relied on Twitter and Facebook for the latest information on the arson and noted how people tweeted when they first saw smoke and they shot videos and photographs of burning cars on their cell phones. So it's a very active thing that's going on these days. Facebook is a place where people try to portray their perfect world and they do that by posting status updates and pictures that show them having the time of their lives rather than what they try to portray in lawsuits and when they give depositions. Examples of things that we've found on Facebook in cases, a plaintiff in a case said that he couldn't use his right arm after it was crushed in a meat grinder. We found photographs of him holding a woman over his head on the dance floor. After a deposition, a plaintiff in another case updated his status to read, stupid attorneys believe anything. And another plaintiff posted, lawsuit number four, check, beats working. We've also had plaintiffs who say they can't play basketball or they can't go snowboarding after an injury, and then they post pictures of themselves doing those things. Facebook provides us with the real picture of what is going on in a person's life compared to what we are told in court documents and in depositions, and those things can impact a person's credibility. Uh, Dan, what are the ethical issues in using social media for discovery and investigation? Yes, John, that's a good question because there are emerging ethical problems with obtaining this information. As many of your listeners might be aware, there are privacy settings with social media that allow you to block or partially limit or befriend certain areas of friendship, including family and others, and there are also an ability to keep it open 100% public. There have been three states that have dealt with the ethical issue that someone has. You know, the question you have to ask yourself is if you have a claimant and you search his Facebook page and you can't get onto it, are you allowed to ethically befriend him? Are you allowed to have an investigator befriend him? Can you create a false name and try to befriend him? Three states have dealt with this. The first one was Pennsylvania came out in March of 2009 and specifically found that a third party that tried to befriend a potential claimant in a case was deceiving the claimant. And deception was deception as far as they were concerned. And they felt that trying to obtain information for impeachment purposes was deception. Uh, so Philadelphia and the Pennsylvania Bar did not allow it to be ethically done. In September of 2010, New York came out with a similar decision and said that if you disclose your purpose, you can befriend someone to try to gain access to their Facebook page or their MySpace page, but you cannot set up a false profile or portray yourself as some lost classmate. Connecticut, most recently, in March of 2011, came out and said that an attorney would be held potentially to an ethical violation even if they used a third party, such as a, an agency or a private investigator, to do something to befriend a potential claimant. So the question becomes, and unfortunately some attorneys that may be listening to this may be wondering now whether they have directly or indirectly crossed ethical lines by obtaining information. The question becomes, how do you obtain this information, photographs, postings, comments, without violating those ethical rules? Uh, Heather, what are some case law findings where social media was and was not discoverable? Some courts have barred the production of social media on the grounds that its production amounts to a phishing expedition. 
So it's best if you can find out something ahead of time which supports your argument to the court that the production of social media is likely to lead to the discovery of admissible evidence. In McElprang versus Fidelity, the Nevada court held that it was a fishing expedition without anything more than a suspicion that turning over that information would turn up some relevant evidence in a case. Similarly, in McCann versus Harleysville, a New York court held that a defendant had the burden of establishing a factual predicate relating to the relevancy of evidence and that they wanted to preclude a fishing expedition into the plaintiff's Facebook account in that case as well. Other courts have held that social media has no legitimate expectation of privacy. In Marino versus Hamford, a California court held that anyone who posts on social media sites has no expectation of privacy. In McMillan versus Hummingbird Speedway, the court held that there was no expectation of privacy and ordered the social media website to turn over the account user and names and passwords of its plaintiff. In Murphy versus Perger, a Canadian court held that a plaintiff could not have a serious expectation of privacy when her profile showed she granted access to 366 people. And in another case, it Barnes versus CUS Nashville, a federal court judge in Tennessee friended the plaintiff and reviewed the pages on her social media pages in camera and then disseminated only the relevant content. Uh, Heather, what are some standard objections by social media sites to disclosure? Um, as Dan discussed earlier, the Stored Communications Act does not authorize a civil litigant to obtain stored communications, but only allows the government to do so with a warrant. Um, in civil cases, when you couple a subpoena with an authorization signed by the plaintiff, that is helpful in obtaining the records because the plaintiff has constructive possession over the content and by signing the authorization is agreeing to its production. The standard objections by social media sites are improper service, lack of jurisdiction, as state court subpoenas have to be issued from a court within California or must be issued pursuant to the proper California Court Commission, and federal court subpoenas must also issue from the court in the district in which the production is to be made. Social media sites also object on the grounds that requests are vague if they fail to identify the information sought of, you know, account holders with adequate precision to allow the social media site to properly identify the individual. And they also object on the grounds that requests are overly broad and are essentially phishing expeditions. This is why the best practice tips are important, and Dan is going to discuss those with you. Uh, yes, Dan, and finally, what are some best practice tips in using social media in discovery and investigation? Yeah, John, we have found that statewide we've tried to come up with what would be best practices for attorneys to avoid ethical issues and get the information they desire. You have to remember, the goal is to obtain the truth in civil litigation. And what we have found the best practice is to, when a claim is first made or a claim is first reported, either the defendant, whether they're self-insured or the adjuster, should be immediately doing a public search to determine what, if any, content, social media content, can be attributable to the claimant and what is public information. And it should be downloaded, printed, date-stamped, and stored away and filed in the event that the claim escalates into a lawsuit. Public searches are quite easy, and there are many search engines that allow for social media-type searches as well. So we recommend a public search be done more than once, multiple times throughout the claim process, and the information be date-stamped and stored. If a case gets into suit, we recommend formal discovery, letters to preserve the evidence, motions with the court to require the plaintiff not to delete content, untag photographs, and remove posts that have been made. 
In fact, for example, what we generally recommend is if you take Facebook, for an example, you can take a laptop to a judge, you can go to your home account settings, and there's a link that Facebook has created right there under account settings for downloading all of your Facebook data. Literally takes 10 seconds in a flash drive to pass over the information, and we have found that courts are more likely to allow the discovery of this information where it is a reasonable burden and not an overburden to the plaintiffs. And as Heather pointed out, it's important to be reasonable, too, in terms of scope and time. You know, going back 10 years or going back over too much time might be considered unreasonable. The important thing is that Facebook ultimately is the best custodian for this information. And the only way we've seen that you are able to obtain information because of the Stored Communications Act from social media outlets such as MySpace or Facebook or Twitter, the best way is to couple your subpoena with an authorization. And the best way to get an authorization is to get in front of that court and compel the plaintiff to authorize it. One thing to keep in mind, John, a lot of people wonder, well, what happens if they delete the contact, they untag the photos? Most social media outlets have the ability to restore all information that has ever been posted onto the account if it's deleted. And the scary thing is, and what we're learning, is that information that's posted, tagged photos that you don't even have control over, are posted and kept in the Internet forever. And so this information's out there, and I think we will see as time goes on, it will change the way juries receive evidence in cases, particularly where there's a big dispute over the injuries and extent of uh, pain and suffering to a claimant. Okay, thanks very much for joining us today, Dan and Heather. It's been our pleasure. Thank you. That was Dan Santanello and Heather Calhoun from the law firm of Lux, Santanello, Petrillo, and Jones with seven offices in Florida. Special thanks to Brendan Noonan from our communications team and to our producer, Brian Cohen. And thank you all for joining us for the Insurance Law Podcast. To subscribe to this audio program, visit podcast.insuranceattorneysearch.com or go to online directories such as iTunes or Google or Yahoo's podcast directory. If you have any suggestions for for a future topic regarding an insurance law case or issue, please email us at lawpodcast.ambest.com. I'm John Zuba, joined by Brendan Noonan, and now this message. Best's directory of recommended insurance attorneys is used by decision makers at insurance companies responsible for selecting legal counsel and representation. The printed directory is distributed annually to insurance companies, non-insurance companies, third-party administrators, and corporate counsel around the world, and the online edition is accessible throughout the year. Your listing in Best's directory of recommended insurance attorneys is the most effective way to ensure that thousands of potential clients have access to your outstanding credentials. Here's why you should be listed in the number one insurance attorney reference. Your firm's credentials will be listed in our comprehensive reference guide, which is made available to thousands of insurance professionals globally, both in print and online. AMBEST listees are recognized as the most qualified in their field to represent the unique needs of insurance companies. Key decision makers rely on the directory to take the guesswork out of their selection process. They know that only the best are listed, those firms with a proven track record of excellence who are recommended by their insurance industry clients. And remember, one low rate guarantees year long visibility for your firm. We invite you to use our web application process to apply for a listing today. With our reasonable rates and broad exposure, there's no more effective way to get the attention of the insurance industry. For more information about Best's Directory of Recommended Insurance Attorneys, visit www.insuranceattorneysearch.com. 